Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut Governor Daniel Malloy brought attention to reforming the criminal justice system with his Second Chance Society. His proposal saw mixed results, bail reform, and allowing nonviolent 18 to 20-year-old offenders to be treated as juveniles went nowhere this last session. Conversely, some new laws have come out of it, like decreased penalties for simple drug offenses and an improvement in the process behind parole hearings and pardons to help nonviolent offenders get back to living on the outside. But there are ex-offenders who see flaws in all this talk about second chances. We spoke with Bloomfield resident Adam Daniels, who says there isn't enough support for people once they leave prison. Adam Daniels, welcome to where we live. Hi, how you doing? Uh, Adam, you recently wrote an op-ed in the Hartford Current. Can you tell us about um, what you wanted to share with people who who, uh, read that publication? Well, basically, um, what I wrote was about the struggles that guys have getting out of prison and how hard it is to get jobs and how there's really no services available to people that are released from prison and like agencies as, as far as like when you're released, where do you go? You know, how do you get a job? Services like Connecticut Works or like other places like that. Nobody told me where to go basically when I got released from prison, like how to get a job with a felony record. And it was really difficult finding jobs and services and agencies that provide the services for guys that have felony records to get jobs. So basically from my time from when I was locked up to the halfway house to being on parole, nobody really told me anything about how to get jobs, how to look for jobs or, you know, nonprofit agencies that they could refer you to to go look. You know, the services that were available, that they said are available, I never was provided those. You said uh, they said were available. Who are you talking about? I'm saying as far as like being like my time spent in the halfway house, nobody nobody really showed me where to go in the time when I was in the halfway house. My halfway house time was spent in Waterbury. Like I live in Bloomfield. So being in Waterbury is like a whole different district than Hartford. Why would I look for a job in Waterbury when I'm going back to live in Bloomfield or live in Hartford? So Like, what is the purpose of sending guys to different areas in the state to find jobs where you're not, you know, you're not going to live there permanently? So it's like a waste of time. So why would you go to a different city to find a job knowing that you're not going to stay there? So you were released after three years serving time for a DUI charge. Did did the Department of Correction, was there anyone within the prison system that directed you of where you could go once you're released? No, that's my whole point is that the time that I served, nobody was preparing me for my release. So basically it's like it was basically like dead time, like just sitting there in limbo, not knowing what you're going to do when you get released. Nobody is in prison like telling you here's what you do when you get out or here's where you go when you get out or go, you know, these are places that hire guys or these are agencies that will help you when you get released. As far as I know, like from the time that I served from 2011 to 2013, no, there was nothing going on in prison at all. 
And so when you got out, you probably heard a lot about Governor Malloy's Second Chance Society, so initiatives to reform the prison system. That prompted your letter to the Hartford Current because right. of your experience. Right. I had I had read whatever I could get my hands on. I read the Hartford Current. I've seen, like, you know, Daniel Malloy's Second Chance Society and all that type of stuff. I read what they were trying to do. But as far as, like, actually seeing it when you get out, where was it? Like, I don't know where it is. So how did you learn to navigate once you were released? So you were in a halfway house in Waterbury, and then what then? There was nothing then. The times that they would let you out to go look for a job, when the time that they say you're supposed to go out and look for a job, where are you supposed to go look? You just walk around aimlessly in a city that you're not from. You don't know anybody out there. You don't know where to go look. It's like hide-and-go-seek or something like that. Like you're playing a game like of where to look. And how long were you in Waterbury at the halfway house? For um, two months. Two months. Um, so it, does this contribute to the, the cycle of people returning to prison when they don't have any connection when they're in the community to, to find help? Honestly, I feel that being in the halfway house is, was, is like a waste of time because you're looking for a job in a city that you're not really going to live in and that you're not really going to ever have a future in. So the job that you might get while you're there, by the time you get it, you know, your sentence is up. And then what are you going to do after that? Like, how are you going to find housing or how are you going to make money in general? It just doesn't make sense. The whole thing, top to bottom, doesn't make sense to me. From Waterbury, where did you go? Back to Bloomfield, back to the Hartford area. So me being there looking for a job made no sense because I knew I was returning home back to Hartford anyways. So looking for a job in Waterbury was like, what's the point when I know I'm not going to stay out there and I'm not going to live out there? There was like almost 10 halfway houses in Waterbury. So you have 10 halfway houses. You don't know how many guys are out every day looking for jobs, and that's just in Waterbury. So imagine how many guys go out every day looking for jobs. So you're competing with the guys, all the other guys in all the other halfway houses every day. They're all out looking for jobs every day just like you are. So it's like you're competing with those guys, and that's not counting the people that live in Waterbury that are looking for jobs. So it's like how are you going to get a job when the unemployment rate is whatever it is and the people out there need jobs, and then you have the guys coming home from prison that need jobs. They're competing with the people that already live in Waterbury, and then you have 10 halfway houses. So you could say, let's just say 100 people are in each halfway house. Let's just say that's 1,000 guys right there. Mm -hmm. So you have 1,000 guys every day out there looking for a job, competing with the unemployed people in Waterbury who are looking for jobs. How is that possible? Like, how yeah. how are you going to get a job? When you got back to the Hartford area, what kind of jobs did you apply for, and what kind of success did you see? I applied for anything and everything, like anything that was available. It wasn't that I was being picky or I wanted this certain type of job, but it was just any job that I thought I just basically needed money, so I applied to anything. Did you get any callbacks? It was, honestly, you go to an interview when you have a record and you have a felony, you know, you can present yourself a certain type of way and you can impress somebody at the interview, but at the end of the day, it's not their decision. It's the company's decision. It's the it's the human resource department. It's the corporation. It's the headquarters that are making th these decisions. It's not the person that's interviewing you. So it doesn't matter how much you impress the person that's interviewing you. When they go up the ladder and they do the background check, it's going to come back and then, you know, they'll end up retracting the job. So they can hire you 
you know, after the initial interview. But after that, when they go do their checks and all that stuff, they're going to come back and say, you know, you have a felony. We can't hire you. So then what are you supposed to do after that? It's like it really doesn't matter. So it it's hard to say at an interview, do you tell them, yes, I have a felony record or yes, I have a criminal conviction right there at the interview to just lay it out there, you know, up front? Or do you wait till after the interview to get rejected? It's like a double-edged sword. It's like a lose-lose situation. Do you tell them up front that I have a record and then get the judgment right there from them? Or do you not tell them and then wait to see what the human resource department is going to do when they do do the background check? That's the confusion. And the question is, like, how do you tell somebody you have a record? That's really the problem, that telling somebody you have a criminal record. People don't want to hear that. You You go into an interview... And you're speaking to somebody and you say, hey, guess what? You know, I have a felony or I have a criminal record. Then they're going to look at you differently off the bat, like as soon as you tell them that. So what kind of jobs are available to someone with a prison record? Basically, everybody that I've met that I spent time in prison with, they were like dishwashers probably or working in a warehouse. Those are the two top felon jobs right there. If you want to get a job, it's like go to a warehouse or go in the kitchen and be a dishwasher. That's like your future. That's your destiny. That's like what society tells you that's your future. When you hear about the Second Chance Society, I mean, how do you feel Connecticut could do a better job helping people like you who at one point made a mistake or made a mistake several times, but you've done your time and now you want to be a productive citizen? How can the state help you? I think the first thing they need to do is take the question off the applications of of, have you been convicted of a felony? Do you have a criminal background? Because it's basically employment discrimination. Asking that question based on your past, it doesn't mean who you are today as a person. Like a lot like a lot of times, like even like when I went to the parole board, you're looking you're judging a person off of paperwork, off of their past. You don't really know that person. So until you really get to give somebody a chance and get to know that person, nobody's gonna ever give anybody a chance if you're just judging them off of paperwork. I think Connecticut did pass a law to ban the box, so to speak, uh, to ask if someone has a criminal conviction on a a job application. But then once you get to that second round, you referenced it earlier, they can still do a background check. And when they find out, is it likely that you'll still get the job? Yeah, I don't know. That's the whole thing. I don't, I I really don't know. (laughs) Asking, you know, asking, do you have a, a criminal record or just checking that box will get your application shredded, you know, immediately. People won't even glance at your application once they see that box is checked. So that's automatically, like, taking you right off the table right there. So you're not really getting a chance. There is no fair chance is what I'm saying. There is no second chance. What did, how did you decide what to do with your life then? Is it to go back to um, get a degree from a community college, which you said you are a student? The only thing I see, I could see it as a, to, you know, climb up the ladder or to progress in life is to go to school and get an education. That's the only thing that I think could trump my criminal record is like getting a degree. Maybe getting a degree could outweigh my criminal record. That's my whole, I guess you could say, experiment is seeing whether a degree will outweigh a criminal record. And I don't know the answer to that yet. You wrote in the op-ed that without family support, your ability to even get a community college degree would be in jeopardy. So what about all those other guys that serve time 
uh, at the same time you did? If they don't have that support, is it even possible for them to try to get a degree? I think, honestly, the system is set up that you don't have a chance. There is, there is no chance. You never will have a chance. If you don't have family support or you don't have a place to live and you don't have any type of ways to make a living, what, what are you supposed to do? You come out of prison with a felony record and you need to get a job, but how are you going to make a living with a felony record? How are you going to make money to support yourself with a record? So you're going into the a job field or you're going into society with the odds stacked against you off the bat. So once you can't get a job, what are you going to do? If you can't make a living, people won't give you a job. What are you going to do? What are people going to do? This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm speaking with Adam Daniels. He's a Bloomfield resident, and he recently wrote an op-ed in the Hartford Current titled Looking for My Second Chance. So you spent time in prison, and you wrote about the difficulties of trying to restart your life on the outside. Um, What kind of reaction did you get from that op-ed once it was published? Well, from the people that I know, as far as like, you know, family or friends and stuff like that, I got a lot of support from people that actually know me, that, you know, who know who I am and know me previously. I, I got a lot of support. But I know there's a whole nother section of society that, I don't know, looks down on people that have criminal records. I, I'm pretty sure there was a lot of negative response. You brought with you um, printouts of, of two letters to the editor after your op-ed was published. Um, what was their reaction to what you wrote? Two people wrote letters to the editor, um, and they were basically negative responses. And I wanted to get a chance to respond to them. The first letter says, multiple DUI offender doesn't deserve any help. I'll just read a piece of what he wrote. He said, he said my question is, how many second chances does he want? And he says, by my account, he has already had too many. Then he goes on to say he should live with what he has done. His second chances were used long ago. I just think that's ridiculous. In this day and age, to say that people don't deserve second chances is a contradiction to what America is supposed to be about. And we live in a state right now in Connecticut where Joseph Gannum, the mayor of Bridgeport, okay, has gone to prison and served his time in federal prison for corruption or whatever he did. I don't even know the details. Okay, the man went and did his time, right, in Bridgeport, served seven years in federal prison, got back out and got reelected and to be mayor again of Bridgeport. So how could you say that people don't deserve second chances when we live in a state where a mayor of the biggest city in Connecticut went to prison, did his time, came out, and got reelected mayor again? Is that not a second chance? That's like... How are you going to say people don't deserve second chances? Some people listening would say Mayor Ganim did not deserve that second chance. But we get your point. Right. They would say he doesn't deserve a second chance, but he got reelected. So obviously he got a second chance. But the point is that I'm not Joseph Ganim. I'm not Joe Ganim. I'm not the mayor of Bridgeport. I don't have that, those ties. I don't, I'm not politically tied. I don't have that clout. I don't have that name. So a lot of guys out here, thousands of guys in Connecticut, who are just the average Joe, no pun intended, the average Joe doesn't get a second chance. Joseph Gannam got a second chance. How does that how, how does that happen? You're telling me like people that only have money or that are politically connected, those are the type of people that get second chances, but the average guy on the street who did his time and comes out and needs a job, 
doesn't get a second chance. I, I don't know how that works because if you get elected, you need to be win by a popular vote, right? So you must be having people supporting you. So why aren't the other guys on the street getting supported like Mayor Ganim and Bridgeport? Someone else wrote a letter to the editor, uh, again, at the Hartford Current, um, and she wrote, I hope there is someone out there who will recognize this young man's efforts and give him a job. Does that give you hope that there are people out there that think you do deserve another chance? Yeah, that that lady, that whoever wrote that letter, that made me feel good, that she took the time out to sit down and say that, you know, he does deserve another chance, that those are the people that I'm looking for. Those are the, I'm hoping that that's the majority of the people out there have that type of opinion when it comes to this matter. People need to be enlightened to what's going on. My opinion is that if prison doesn't affect certain people's lives, then they don't they don't worry about that. If people are living in, and I'm not trying to judge suburban towns and stuff like that, but if you're living in Farmington, if you're living in Avon, if you're living in Simsbury, if you're living in West Hartford or whatever, and your sons aren't going to prison, and your families aren't being destroyed, and you don't see the impact of the legal system on your family or in your town, then you don't worry about that. But people that live in Hartford, people that live in New Haven, people that live in Bridgeport, people that live in Waterbury, this stuff affects their lives on a day-to-day basis. People are concerned about stuff like that. People are concerned about their sons going to prison. People are concerned about my dad's in prison, my brother's in prison, you know, whoever, my family relative, my cousin's in prison, my friend's in prison. People are concerned about stuff like that. People deal with that stuff on a day-to-day basis. People that live in other towns in Connecticut, they don't deal with that. They're not worried about that. Stuff that doesn't affect them, they don't worry about that. It's not an issue to them. But that this is a real issue. This is like a, a real issue that's going on right now. And it's not like just in Connecticut. This is like in America. This is This is a national topic. It's been three years since you released were released from prison. You know what keeps you going? Oh gosh, that's a million dollar question. My number one fear is being the guy that gets out and goes back. That's basically what fuels me every day. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy who just spends his rest of his life, you know, back and forth from prison, year after year, year after year after year. That's what motivates me to just not be that guy. Well, when you get your degree from community college, you'll have to let us know if that helps you get that job that you're looking for. We'll see. This is like, this is the Adam Daniels experiment, I guess, to see whether or not education can really, you know, boost you to that level in life. Adam Daniels is a Bloomfield resident, and he came on the show to talk about uh, life uh, on the outside after he was released from prison. Thank you so much, Adam, for your time. Thank you for having me. When we come back from the break, the next installment of our series, Know Your Rights. Today, we tackle the Fourth Amendment. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier this summer, near the 50th anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision Miranda v. Arizona, we invited Assistant Public Defender from Hartford, Tejas Bott, to Where We Live to give us the history behind the Miranda rights, or our right to remain silent. That prompted the beginning of an occasional series here called Know Your Rights. And last month, Tejas was good enough to come back on to talk about the First Amendment. He's back today as we continue the series Know Your Rights. Hi, Tejas. Thanks, Lucy. It's great to be back. So today it's the Fourth Amendment. Tell us, what is the Fourth Amendment? Oh, the Fourth Amendment is my favorite amendment. The Fourth Amendment is the one that protects all of us from the police being able to 
search and seize items without probable cause, without a warrant, and without particularly describing the place to be searched or the person or things to be taken. So that's the one that you hear about most frequently when police are conducting investigations. They go into people's homes. They look for evidence. They stop you when you're walking down the street and ask you questions. They pull your car over for a motor vehicle violation, and then they start asking you, can I search your car? The Fourth Amendment controls all of that stuff. So it's the bulk of the vast majority of our interactions with police when they're conducting their investigation using their investigatory power. So it's really relevant today when we're looking at the issues of policing, especially in minority communities. Uh, You've taken Know Your Rights on the Road to community forums. One was held this week in Waterbury. Tell us about that. Yeah. um, On Tuesday, we had a community forum in Waterbury with a, a joint operation with the ACLU of Connecticut, who do a tremendous amount of work in this area. And the idea was to go into communities that have interactions with local police that may not be on the best of terms um, or where there are a lot of disparities and arrests that are that that have been found by the by the racial profiling commission and the, and the stats that are being produced in Connecticut um, and the idea was to not it wasn't to be a confrontational thing with the police but the idea was to generally have a discussion with the citizens to tell them these are your rights and these are your obligations these are the limits of police activity. This is what the cops can do when they stop you, and this is what they can't do. And what are your remedies? Um, I know that the Waterbury Republican American uh, a, a month or two ago had reported on a, um, a a different forum that occurred in Waterbury with the police chief and had made um, or had reported on some of the comments that the chief had made, which got some of us a little upset because tell yeah. us about what he said yeah so well the way so i had a long conversation with the police chief and he says that the the comments were misrepresented but this is what the the newspaper reported was that the comments were of the vein that if police stop you on the street and if you have an interaction with police you should always consent to their searches you should always agree to let them look in your car and then take it up later on through the courts or through the review process now this was problematic for a number of reasons Because once you consent to a search, you have given up your right to challenge the legality of that search in court. And I'm sure, as we are all aware, there are varying degrees of um, success when seeking redress through internal mechanisms with police departments. Some uh, internal affairs um, systems are robust and reliable and some aren't. So we took um, sort of umbrage to the idea that police are telling citizens that you need to always consent to searches. And some of the other remarks that were reported were actually less than charitable in that, you know, uh, the the title was How to Survive an Encounter with the Police. And that's to me, is a little offensive because I don't think we should be telling citizens that if you don't comply with police, you're going to get hurt. Um, How do you survive an encounter? No. How should police behave when interacting with citizens that they are sworn to protect. Um, I will say that I had a long chat with the the police chief of Waterbury, Chief Riddick, and he made it very clear to me, and I have absolutely no reason to to question this, that his comments were misrepresented. And he agrees, in essence, with everything that I said on Tuesday night and what I will say today about the rights of citizens and and the obligations of police. So originally the reporting of what uh, Chief Riddick said back in uh, earlier this summer, you know, that kind of goes against our Fourth Amendment rights. Absolutely. Right. And so you you held this discussion in Waterbury in part 
for that um, attention that Chief Reddick of the comments that he had made, um, also with some of the issues that police and citizens have had in Waterbury in the past. So what was the response um, in the forum to um, understanding more about their rights? Well, I, my impression was that the forum was generally very well received. What I did notice, interestingly enough, is that there was a lot of there was there was some measure of frustration from people because I have to give them the news that you have the right, for instance, to refuse a search. And if police come up to you on the street and they say, um, you know, the, can I search your car? And and you can say no. Um, I think a lot of people think that's the end of it, but it's not. The police can then go ahead and search your car if they believe that they have the right to do so. You in the in in that situation aren't going to be told by police. Um, here's why I believe I have the right to search your car. You may not be aware why they think they have the right to search your car. You may well and truly and honestly believe that you have done absolutely nothing wrong, but they don't think so, and they're going to search your car. So. The remedy is to go to court and file a motion to suppress the evidence that they may have found in your car. So I think that was a little – people weren't happy to hear that their their remedy was to acquiesce to what they believed to be illegal police activity at the time or they had to put up with it and then challenge it down the road um, in court. But but the point of the advice is and, – and I will say this again – you know, I would never advocate, and I don't think any lawyer would advocate, any sort of physical physical resistance to, to this sort of police activity that even you perceive to be illegal. Um, that's just not called for. It's not allowed. You're going to get yourself in more trouble. And that's how tensions escalate and people end up getting hurt. And there's absolutely no call for that. Um, it is sort of disappointing to hear that my remedy is to go to a court and then fight the court case after I've been unjustly arrested. Um, but that is the way the law is set up, and that's the way – um, the remedy is provided. So that that was a little bit of, of what I sensed from the crowd was, well, these are my rights, but I can't enforce them. And they can sort of violate them anyway. And then I have to go to court to take it up. Unfortunately, yes. But not any, not everyone's going to want to have to go that route, to have to go to court to clear their name. Right. Right. And I think a lot of people are also very averse to the court process and very not trusting of the court process because of part of the, part of the discussions that we've been having and it, across the state and the country um, about how people of color and minorities are treated disparately in court systems. They're stopped at greater rates. They're arrested at greater rates. They're searched at more disproportionate rates. And you go to court and there's this general pervasive idea that people of color in courts get harsher sentences. So I don't think people want to put their faith and their trust in that process as well. You know, part of our occasional series, Know Your Rights, is to understand the history behind the Bill of Rights. So we're talking today about the Fourth Amendment. Tell us the history behind it, Tejas. So the history behind, and I've said this the last time we talked, and I'll say it again the next time we talk, the history behind the vast majority of our Bill of Rights it comes from our interaction with uh, the British Crown at the time that the colonists were seeking their independence uh, in, in America in the, in the 1600s and the 1700s. Uh, the Fourth Amendment is actually very interesting because what what happened was that the British government used what were called general warrants. And these warrants were issued by a secret court in London, and they were essentially to invade the privacy of the colonists. They were uh, warrants that had no scope, had no restrictions on scope, I should say. Um, and, and a lot of times they weren't even limited to a particular person or a particular place. And they actually had 
um, what was called a writ of assistance, which means that a warrant could be issued by certain people here in America, not even through a court in, in London, um, to search homes and in, primarily in order to determine whether they pay taxes. Um, so th- this was a, a scenario where you had these people who had this inordinate amount of power who could um, go into anyone's house, search for anything that they wanted without any limitations, without any restrictions. And you can see how very quickly that can become a tool of oppression and power used to harass people. So they, um, the, the founders had a very strong aversion to this. And before the federal union was formed, all the colonies and the states, um, state constitutions passed um, laws that prohibited general warrants. And the way it shows up now is, as I said in the opening, the warrants have to be based on probable cause. That means they have, you have to have some reason to believe that the person is, uh, has committed or is committing a crime. And there is what is called the particularity requirement. That means the warrants have to be particular to a person or a place stating the nature of the item to be seized or the person to be arrested. So the, the easiest example is, you know, let's say police are looking for the evidence of a crime, which is um, a baseball bat. And um, they get a warrant to search your house for a baseball bat. They can only search in areas where a bat reasonably might be found. So because they're looking for a bat, they can't go rifle through your sock drawer because a baseball bat won't be hidden in a sock drawer, can't be hidden in a sock drawer. So that's what the particularity requirement is. And and that's the pushback to this general warrant, writ of assistance. Anybody who gets authority from the crown can just come to your house and look for whatever they want. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're continuing our New Year Rights series uh, with Assistant Public Defender Tejas Bott from Hartford. Can we talk about how uh, the Fourth Amendment has evolved? We did a little bit earlier, but in terms of, of the way our laws are changing, such as the legalization of marijuana and that intersection between that and our Fourth Amendment rights. Right. So, so that's one of the there are sort of two new areas of the evolution of the Fourth Amendment that are going to be interesting to a lot of people. One is... Uh, the intersection of Fourth Amendment and technology, you know, all all our gadgets today. But the other one is marijuana. So up until, I guess, 2012 or uh, whatever, the last few years in Connecticut, um, marijuana was uh, an illegal drug. So it was illegal to possess, possess with the intent to sell or sell. Um, And what why that's important is because for a very long time, that formed the basis for police to stop individuals on the street. Um, you see somebody smoking a, a joint. That is evidence that a crime has been or is being committed to a possession of marijuana. And then that allows them to um, form reasonable suspicion, probable cause to search someone, search a car, things like that, ask them further questions, pat them down to see if there's other evidence of contraband, um, and things like that. What we did in Connecticut was we decriminalized the possession of less than half an ounce of marijuana. Now, what that means is um, it's not legal, but it's not a crime. It's sort of like a traffic ticket. You can't get arrested for it. You can't get a misdemeanor of conviction. You can't get a felony conviction. You can't get jail time. Um, The legal standard for stopping individuals and stopping cars is probable cause or the lower standard of reasonable suspicion to believe that a crime has been or is being committed. Since um, marijuana possession is no longer a crime, 
technically police should not be able to stop people on the basis of of suspe- suspecting that they are smoking personal use marijuana. Technically, but what's been happening? Well, what's been happening is that courts, our court is still deciding it. The Connecticut Supreme Court has a case before it in which they're considering this specific issue. Uh, Massachusetts has already ruled because Massachusetts did the same thing. They decriminalized and Massachusetts has said you cannot use this as a basis to stop somebody. You cannot use it as a basis to investigate further criminal activity because it's not a crime. Um, Other states have gone the opposite way and said, well, no, it forms basis. Even though it's decriminalized, it can lead to, to other things. And so police have the authority to do that. So in Connecticut, the answer is sort of not yet formed, my gut instinct and my initial reaction would be to say, if it's not a crime, you can't use that as an excuse to stop somebody. The reality, I think, unfortunately, is that police in their policing function have to rely on all sorts of tricks to ferret out crime. And in a lot of times that involves stopping people who are smoking marijuana, because there is in our collective consciousness and the law and order consciousness, an association between people who use drugs and people who commit crimes, um, unfair as that may be. So I'm sure you, we see it all the time. People with marijuana stopped, asked, questioned, and sometimes they find something, sometimes they don't. Anything else we should know about our, our Fourth Amendment rights, Tejas? Um, I, I would say that everybody has the right. You should be aware that you have the right to refuse to consent. Um, and if some, if a police officer asks you, you can say, no, I don't want to consent. I don't want to allow you to search me, search my car. And if they feel like they can go ahead and do it, they're going to do it anyway. Tejas Bott, again, assistant public defender from Hartford. And you have a blog. Remind us what it is. It's uh, criminalopinions.wordpress.com. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much. Coming up, we'll hear about renewable energy in New England. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. The New England News Collaborative has been working on a five-part series exploring new ideas in energy storage and production in the region. John Dankosky, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of Next, is here now to tell us more. Hi, John. Hi there, Lucy. So we've been hearing uh, the stories on WNPR. I know the other member stations of the Collaborative have also been playing them. So they're talking about renewable energy in the region. Why are you talking about this right now? Well, it's a really transformative time for renewables and really for the entire energy sector here in New England. You, You may have heard news that just off the coast of Rhode Island, the first offshore wind farm in the United States is just getting underway. The the blades are going to start turning very, very soon. It's a very small project, but it points to the possibility of more offshore wind coming all across the New England coastline. Now, that's going to take some time. You may have heard about the Cape Wind project off of Cape Cod that for many years was proposed and was going to create a lot of electricity, but it got shot down by a lot of residents who didn't want to see the turbines, and some political things got in the way. A lot of people have said that this Block Island project has paved the way for more development of wind resources in the region. Uh, Massachusetts just passed a big energy bill that is going to incentivize more solar and wind. 
There was a big RFP put out by the three southern New England states, Connecticut and Rhode Island and Massachusetts, to try to get more renewable energy into their portfolio because they're trying to cut down on carbon emissions over the course of the next couple decades. So they put out this this request for proposals. They're going to be looking at those over the course of the next couple months, and maybe we're going to see some big renewable projects, mostly in northern New England. So there's a lot happening right at this very moment, and there's so many cool technologies we're going to tell stories about, too. When we're talking about energy, in New England, you know, where does it come from? How much of it is, comes from renewable sources versus like the natural gas? Well, here's what's interesting is you would think that over the course of the last 15 years or so, we would just be awash in renewable resources. The fact is that in, in the year 2000, we got about 8 or 9% of our energy from renewable sources in New England, and now it's you know, about 9%. It hasn't grown all that much. What has grown is the natural gas sector. We've been hearing a lot about building out natural gas pipelines. Of course, the state where you and I come from, Lucy, Pennsylvania, has been fracking for uh, natural gas for years, which has driven down the cost, meaning that a lot of the investment in the energy sector has been in natural gas, which about 50% of all of our energy across New England comes from natural gas right now. That was only 15% not so long ago. So in order to, to bend this curve, to change the way we get our uh, energy, not so much from fossil fuels, more from renewables, there's going to have to be more investment in things like wind and solar. You're, one of the stories in the series is from Rhode Island, right, where they're seeing some opposition about a, a plant uh, for natural gas plant being built in a small town. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this story is about Burrowville, Rhode Island, which is a little town not too far from the Connecticut border and not too far from the Massachusetts border as well. There's already another power plant very near there, and there's another power plant across the border in Connecticut, not too far from there. Another one proposed for a Connecticut town. So if all of these plans go through, there would be four power plants in just one very small area of Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Now, what we keep hearing is that natural gas, despite the fact that it's a fossil fuel, despite the fact that a lot of people don't like where it's coming from, which is uh, fracking from Pennsylvania and other states further west, it's still a vital part of our energy mix. And we'll be hearing more about that as we go through some of the other stories, but it's because it's a consistent source of power. All of these renewables, whether it's wind or solar, are very intermittent. It's hard to tell when they're on and when they're off. So we need to burn natural gas still in this area. So Burlville has proposed this power plant, and there's been some push and pull between residents, residents like Lorraine Zavard-Ladeau, who spoke to our reporter, Ambar Espinosa, about some of her worries about investment in natural gas in the area. You know, open up a solar panel plant, buy wind turbines. It needs to start now and soon. Not spend $700 million to support fracking. And again, Lucy, there's no fracking here in Connecticut or in Rhode Island, but there is fracking nearby, and people are very concerned about the environmental impact of that. Um, This concern that you just heard from this protester is exactly what you hear all the time from people who support uh, a rush toward renewables, a rush toward more investment in clean energy. They say every time we spend $700 million on a natural gas-fired plant, we're not spending that money developing other sorts of resources. The people who operate the electric grid say it's not that easy. Speaking of uh, solar, as we heard, what's going on in Vermont? We hear it's booming there. Well, you know, solar has been taking off in Vermont, not in the same way it is out west. Of course, we don't have the type of consistent sunlight that Arizona or California have. But Vermont has made big investments in solar. And there are times of the year when Vermont is 
really using an awful lot of solar energy. But here's one of the interesting things, and this is what John Dillon uh, from Vermont Public Radio uh, found out for us. It's that whenever you make big investments in solar, it comes at a cost. And sometimes that cost is having to backstop that solar with, guess what, natural gas. Why is that? Well, sometimes the sun shines and sometimes the sun doesn't shine. Let's actually listen to a little bit from uh, John's story. This is Tom Dunn from Vermont Electric. If you can't see it, And if you can't predict it, what you're forced to do is to run the grid more conservatively. And what that means in terms of of, of air pollution and money is that you have power plants on standby. Okay, so he said, if you can't see it and you can't predict it. So predicting it, I think we understand. You can't predict the weather, although there are some scientists in Vermont who are trying to develop much better weather prediction services. Of course, this would be good for farmers, for all of us to know what the weather is. But if we're really going to get into the renewable business, we need to know what the weather's going to do, when the wind's going to blow, when the sun's going to shine, moment by moment, or else we can't really tune the grid to know where the power's going to come from. The other thing he said is we can't see it. So much solar is on top of people's roofs, and it's going directly to, you know, heat up their tea kettles to warm their water. The electric grid can't see that power. They don't know what the load is going to be that they're going to need for a very, very hot day or a, a day with no sunshine because so much of it is is really blind to them. So they're saying we need to connect up a grid that allows more people to feed their solar energy back into the grid in a way that makes a whole lot of sense and that the grid operators can see so that they can make sure that they're putting the right power in the right place on the right days. What's it going to take to get that? Well, that's another part of this story that's really interesting. Um, We talked to another reporter uh, in Vermont, uh, Kathleen Masterson, who did a story about trying to get uh, water heaters all across the state uh, lined up. Now, why water heaters? What it means is if we can have a grid that actually understands where things are going to be at certain times, where there's going to be energy coming from a certain source or we're going to need energy from another source, we can send it out and ping water heaters all around the state so that we can send excess energy into your water heater. That means you don't have to worry about gas burning to heat up your water heater when you need to take a shower. It's already been heated by extra sun energy. What all this takes is very complex algorithms and a lot of computer work. So some of the scientific work on on this end is really having to do with, you know, electrical engineering, trying to figure out new ways of generating electricity. Um, A lot of it has to do with storage, new battery uh, technology. But so much of this is just computers and figuring out how do we have a grid that talks to one another so that we can figure out how to send the energy to the right places and, and get energy back from you when we need it. We're here in Connecticut. What's happening in terms of wind power? Wind power in Connecticut is a very interesting thing. Uh, We've heard already that Rhode Island is going to be developing offshore wind, and we know that there are offshore wind possibilities happening right now in Massachusetts, maybe up in Maine. All across New England, there are inland wind farms. But Connecticut, not so much. Well, for one thing, we're a small state. We also are a state with not a whole lot of wind resources. So one of the things that people in Connecticut are looking at is maximizing the wind resources that we do have. We built, not too terribly long ago, a wind farm, a very small one, up near where I live in Colebrook, Connecticut, just two turbines. This uh, wind turbine project has already been successful in one way in pointing out that wind as a resource inland in Connecticut can work. 
But some protesters like Joyce Hammondson uh, are very worried about more wind resources like this coming to Colebrook or maybe a nearby town of Goshen. For every three turbines that would be built, uh, it, w- it would take three to do the electric generation that one is rated at. That's why uh, onshore wind in New England is is somewhat of a problem because you have to build more and more in order to get any amount of electricity. So one of the things she's concerned about is not just all the issues that people have had with uh, wind turbines in the past, which include low-frequency humming, uh, flickering shadows, real problems that some people have reported with health. But she's also saying you just have to build so much more capacity inland in order to get the wind power that you'd get if you put it offshore. There's just not enough wind here in most places, and we don't have a whole lot of space where we can set back the wind turbines appropriately from someone's property so that we're not causing any sort of health disturbance and we're able to get any sort of a wind resource. So will we see a big boom in wind onshore in Connecticut specifically? Probably not. That's why we're probably going to get our resources from up north where they've got a lot more room. You mentioned people being concerned about possible health consequences of wind turbines. Is any of this opposition also they just don't want to have to see it? Yeah, that's a big part of the wind controversy, honestly, the solar controversy. And one of the, for me, in covering this issue over the course of the last couple of months, one of the most confounding and interesting issues. An awful lot of the same people who in, say, western Massachusetts, who have put its signs in their front yard saying, no new gas pipeline. Um, they're the same people who also don't want to have a wind turbine in their backyard either. Many of these people truly support renewable energy. It's just renewable energy that comes from somewhere else. And so the question is, where is that going to be? The northern New England states are on the hook for an awful lot of this because they do have more open space and more availability of these resources, more wind, more solar. Uh, Down here in the southern three states, that's our problem. We use far more energy and we're not able to produce anywhere near as much energy. It's why a lot of people, Lucy, I think are excited about this Block Island project. That broke through some of the longstanding, people will say, NIMBY opposition toward uh, having a, a wind farm that's in their line of sight. Now, there's some people who aren't that happy about it. But if you live on Block Island, you're pretty happy because you're going to get first dibs on that energy. Right now, they're burning diesel to put on the lights on Block Island, and I don't think anybody thinks that's a good idea. So maybe a few more of these test projects and people will start to change their minds. And we're hearing about another pilot project happening in Maine. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and this is an interesting one. Uh, Fred Bever, who's a reporter for Maine Public Radio, did this story, and it's it's happening in Booth Bay Harbor. Um, this is an area where, you know, obviously it's expensive to get electricity, and they tried to do something kind of unique. It's a project that aligned a whole bunch of different ways to generate power, to conserve power. One of the things I thought was kind of fun was a project called Ice Bears. You ever heard of an ice bear, Lucy? I have not. Okay, so here's what an ice bear is. Imagine, when I mentioned earlier those hot water heaters that would take excess energy on a really, really sunny day and put it into your hot water heater to store, the ice bear does the same thing but only with ice. So on a day when we've got extra energy, the grid is going to send power to these ice bears and create big blocks of ice. And then on the days that you need to be cooled down, as opposed to running an expensive air conditioner that's going to take power away from the grid, you're going to just be able to blow air across these ice blocks and cool your building. So you're not only using a resource when you have it, 
You're also not using a resource like air conditioning when you don't have it, have it because you don't want to be overloading the system at peak uh, energy. So that's just one of the things in this project. Uh, let's go to Fred to hear some more. Solar panels were installed on rooftops at the firehouse, YMCA, and other locations. Business owners screwed in hundreds of energy-saving compact fluorescent light bulbs, and three powerful truck-sized batteries were placed near a CMP substation. But early on, Grid Solar discovered that on the hottest days, it needed to produce even more electricity locally than initially planned for. So now, this big diesel generator sits out on a dirt road, and it can fire up with the flick of a computer switch in Portland. It's not renewable energy, but it provides enough local electricity for 100 homes, shaving just a bit more from the region's peak load when it counts the most. And that peak load is the really important thing, Lucy. The pricing for electricity, it really happens around those hottest possible days when we have the most energy usage. And so shaving down the amount of peak load is really important, not just for this small electric project, but for the entire grid. Now, as you heard, what that means is at times we're burning diesel. And everybody I've talked to and my reporters have talked to say the same thing is we're not at a point yet where we can get completely away from burning diesel or burning gas. But what this project pointed to is a few different things. One is it really is possible to make a big local difference as far as generation and conservation. But what it also did, and this is the part that Fred, who's an energy reporter and gets more excited about this stuff than any of the rest of us ever could, um, he said that what this did is it kept the local utility from building a big transmission line. Now, why is that important? Well, it costs a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars to put a transmission line through because you need more energy. But if you can prove that maybe you don't need quite so much energy from the grid and more of it can be generated and conserved locally, then the ratepayers don't have to pay the cost of putting that transmission line in. They can pay for things like, well, their own local power, and then have a little bit of money left over to put into the local economy. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, I want to thank you, John Dankowski, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of Next. If you missed some of these stories, you can go to the website, nenc.news, to see some great pictures and also hear the stories. Thank you, John, for your time. Thanks very much, Lucy. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.